0: March, 1930. New South Wales, Australia. In an office building in Sydney, John Bailey is preparing for a meeting with a strange man. As a member of the Australian Workers' Union, he has to have such meetings, with anyone who's a paid-up member. The AWU is one of the oldest and most prestigious unions in Australia. It covers mining and pastoral work, essentially the two industries that are the backbone of Australia's economy, then and now. The man calling the meeting has claims about some new mining venture he once financed. 1930 is the height of the Great Depression, a far cry from the Victoria Gold Rush of the 1850s. Those were the days. Shame about the Bush Rangers, Australian outlaws looking to exploit the vastly wealthy and seriously underguarded colony. But the gold flowed like water and it turned places like Melbourne and Ballarat from backwater nowheres into bustling prosperous cities. Still, there's always more to be discovered. Australia hides a secret, you see. While the coastline is civilised, or as civilised as the British could be bothered to make it, the interior of Australia is vast and untamed. Except, of course, for the Aborigines who've lived there for thousands of years. The unyielding Red Centre hides a wealth of mineral deposits under its shifting crimson sands, if only one is brave enough to find it. But it's no easy feat exploring the Red Centre. Scores of explorers have tried, and scores have perished on their journeys. Scorching heats, flash floods, tropical diseases, venomous animals, a lack of understanding of Aboriginal territorial extents, and the general barren terrain make this terra australis more a terra incognito, the unknown land. Still, meetings to be had and all that. And what the man may lack in evidence, he makes up for in confidence and self-assurance. The man is Harold Bell Lasseter, and he has a bold claim. In 1897, or 1911, the story changes from time to time, he stumbled upon an enormous reef of gold in the outback, at the western edge of the Macdonald Ranges in Australia's Northern Territory. That's the story he told his friend, Albert Green, an Australian politician. What he tells Bailey is that when he was 17, he rode from Queensland to the goldfields of Western Australia. Along the way, on the border of the Northern Territory in Western Australia, around 700 miles west of Alice Springs, a town situated roughly in Australia's geographic centre, he found the reef, seven miles long, seven feet high and 12 feet wide. According to Lassiter, he nearly perished in the desert, if not for a passing Afghan camel trader who rescued him and took him to safety. After that, he spent nearly 30 years attempting to drum up the funding for an expedition to find it again but the other gold rush happening in Western Australia meant that there wasn't much appetite for the comparatively dangerous red centre. But the 1930s were different. The depression had hit Australia hard, and the oft-joked-about emu war had devastated crop harvests. So the gumption was there and eventually Lasseter got his expedition. £50,000 of private money and funding and a fully equipped team were at his disposal. Experienced Bushmen Fred Blakely and Frank Coulson as well as George Sutherland, the prospector, Phil Taylor, the engineer and driver, Captain Blinkston-Houston, the Governor-General's aide and an explorer, and Errol Coote, the pilot. The expedition included motorized transport and aircraft, state-of-the-art for the time. They left Alice Springs on the 21st of July, 1930. Lasseter, however, proved less than useful right off the bat, being dour and unhelpful, as well as generally unreliable for a guide. At 50 years old, he was no spring chicken, but equally, for somebody who'd supposedly spent 30 years trying to make this happen, he didn't seem too cooperative. They headed for Il Bilba, an aerodrome created earlier that year for Donald George McKay's expedition near the aptly named Lake McKay. The group endured logistical difficulties and physical hardships, including losing one of their planes. On reaching Mount Marjorie, now Mount Leisler, Lasseter declared they were 150 miles too far north of the search zone. Exasperated, Blakely declared Lassiter a charlatan, and ended the expedition. Lassiter, however, insisted on continuing the trek, accompanied by a dingo shooter, Paul Johns, and his team of camels. But Lassiter was becoming increasingly erratic. They set off towards Olga, a rock formation near Uluru. One afternoon, he returned to camp with some concealed rock samples and said that he had relocated the gold reef, and then refused to reveal its location. Johns, who by now was doubting Lassiter's sanity, accused him, again, of lying, and after a fight, he left him. Lassiter trudged off into the desert sands with two camels. In March of 1931, they found him. Bob Buck, another bushman, found Lassiter's desiccated corpse in a cave at Hulls Creek. In his diary, it was written that soon after leaving Johns, his camels bolted, giving him no sustenance and no way of returning. There was no kindly Afghan to save him this time. Despite being given some food and some shelter by a passing tribe of Aborigines, he soon died of malnutrition. After that, the media circus was on. Some in the press accused Lasseter's fellows of cowardice, saying they'd left the poor man to die. They responded by pointing to some military records from the First World War, alleging that Lasseter had been a lifelong sufferer of hallucinations and what today might be recognised as something like schizophrenia. The debate over whether Lassiter was a con man, attempting to defraud investors and going in way too deep with the pledge, or a true-hearted explorer who gave everything for a shot at the big time, rages to this day. So what happened out there, in the depths of Australia's outback where it rains on the rock? Was Lewis Harold Bell Lassiter a crazy old coot who pushed the envelope too many times? Or was there really a secret wealth of gold, just waiting to be discovered, hidden in the heart of a continent at once beautiful and deadly? Today on Demystified, we continue our theme of all that glitters is not gold as we go down under with the tale of Lasseter's Reef. So today we look at Lassiter's Reef, a story that, unlike The Lost Dutchman's Mine, I really doubt you'd ever have heard of. And I don't blame you. Obscure Depression-era Australian history? I myself have some roots in the home among the gum trees. My mum was raised there for a number of her formative years, and my granddad still lives there in a small town near Sydney. I've been once or twice. But I can't say that any of that clued me into this story. I found it whilst researching The Lost Dutchman's Mine as a related search. boy, am I glad that I did find it, because this is exactly the kind of story that makes my ears perk up. It's got everything I love. If you could make a demystified bingo, it sits right in that juicy spot between verified history and folklore. Let's run over the facts to begin with, starting with the man himself. Lewis Harold Bell Lasseter was born on the 27th of September, 1880, in Bamgain, Victoria. He was a real man of the world. Autodidactic, he was described as well-read and well-spoken working in Australia and the United States and fathering five children by two wives. Presumably not at the same time, but you never know. What we do know next is that on the 30th of October, 1917, he was given an examination by a military doctor and found to be, quote, mentally deficient, with symptoms of, quote, marked hallucinations and a peculiar manner constantly talking. I did mention earlier that that might line up with schizophrenia, but only in the most common depiction. Symptoms do vary person to person, and I don't want to place labels outside of my place to do so. But that is strange because a few weeks earlier, in September and October, he was hospitalised in two other hospitals with some severe head injury. The findings didn't specify whether there was a correlation between the two. He was discharged from the army in November of 1917, and he immediately joined an impassioned campaign group denouncing the war. Later spectators would argue that these were not the actions of a mentally deficient man. The timeline of his life is fuzzy and general. We know he was in the army during the First World War at some point as part of the AIF, the First Australian Imperial Force, but we don't know for how long. Now, here's where his claims come in. We first hear of them in 1929, in a letter sent to Albert Green, a man who would one day become Postmaster General of Australia, but at the time was a politician in Kalgoorlie. In the letter he stated that 18 years earlier, in 1911, he discovered a massive reef of gold in central Australia, west of the Macdonald Ranges. We do know that at the time, from 1908 till 1913, Lasseter was living on a farmstead in Tabalam, New South Wales. Tabalam is fairly far from the Macdonald Ranges, by the way. He claimed that despite being interviewed by a geologist and a commissioner, that the government wasn't interested in pursuing his claim, Hence the later story that he'd spent 30 years by himself pursuing it, trying to find investors. Then we get to 1930, but before we look at that, what even is a gold reef? I've been saying that phrase a lot. Well, basically, it's when a vein of quartz extends underground with gold ore in it. But on the surface, where the quartz is shallow, the gold often appears in its metallic state, making it easy to recover and easy to spot. Thus indicating the potential presence of far more gold in its ore state buried deep underground, ready to be recovered using mining equipment. Thus, a gold reef can be a good indicator of a potential mother load. For instance, the California gold mother load started with a reef, as did the Bendigo reef in Victoria. So, to the best of my ability to define, when Lassiter says he found a reef and gave the measurements as 7 miles long, 7 feet high, 12 feet wide, he found a whole bunch of exposed metallic gold at the surface of the desert running through a quartz vein, indicating the presence of a yet larger quantity underground that would require extracting. The term is etymologically unrelated to reef as in coral reef. But gold is heavy, and even in its metallic form, you'd need to prize it away, so it would make sense that he couldn't take much, if any, with him on his first accidental discovery. But now it's 1930. Lasseter then takes us up to the Australian Workers' Union. They're the big dogs in the mining business, and that's basically half of Australia's economy. There are also big dogs in the pastoral business, which is the other half of Australia's economy. They're a fairly powerful union, it'd be fair to say. Lasseter meets with John Bailey and tells him a slightly different story. In 1897, he's travelling cross-country and finds the reef further west, closer to the border with Northern Territory in Western Australia. This is where he passed out and was rescued by the Afghan camel trader. Worth noting, by the way, as well, many camels were imported to Australia originally, to help with the desert treks, but now, ironically, Australia actually exports its camels back to the Middle East. Funny, eh? It's also possible that Lassiter's two stories don't conflict with each other. He mentioned later going back with a man named Joseph Harding, a surveyor who was apparently the man that the camel trader had dumped him on. The first mistaken finding could have been 1897, and the first expedition could be 1911, if you differentiate it like that. Since the sources indicate that Lassiter's £50,000 was private investment, it's unlikely John Bailey took up any of the offers. After all, the union was already knee-deep in West Australian gold rush, a much-needed boost to Australia's flagging economy, and desert expeditions were expensive, dangerous, and risky. Even experienced crews could turn back empty-handed, or worse, not at all. Why trust Lassiter? But someone clearly did. What I could find was that it was a consortium, a multi-party investment. Much of the evidence does point to the idea that Lasseter never went to Central Australia before 1930, by the way. For starters, he was in a correctional school in 1897, and whilst he did get out eventually, it didn't leave enough time for him to discover the reef in that year. Moreover, between his farm work in the 08-13 period and the stint in the United States, and his time in the AIF, there's not much time for him to go exploring in the Red Centre. But he got his money, and he got his team. Immediately things go poorly. Apparently Lassiter wasn't much of a travel buddy, giving vague and unhelpful guidance. Eventually they left him, and he picked up some new companions, and they left him too. He loses his camels, and gets found by some aborigines, and then starves to death. They tried to help, but it's too late. He dies sometime between 1930 and 1931. So Lassiter's Reef. Can any more fact be found to back up the fantasy? It's a hell of a story, and true too and unlike poor Adolph Ruth from last week, the findings aren't so bad for Lasseter. Geologists have made various statements as to whether or not there are gold-bearing areas in that part of Australia. In 1931, geologists T. Blatchford and H. W. B. Talbot, accompanying Bob Buck, pronounced the region as unpromising, but they only inspected the Peterman Range in the eastern end of the Rawlinson Range, travelling no further west than the Sladen Waters. In 2014, geologists W. D. Meyer, H. M. Howard, and R. H. Smithies likened the southern part of Lassiter's search area to the Bushveld complex in South Africa, where gold deposits do occur, and said that the region had high potential, quoting a 2002 report of copper-gold vein-style material found north of the Kavanaugh Range. Lasseter's son, for the record, has never given up the idea that his father was onto something. Robert, Bob Lassiter, who from my research is apparently still alive and kicking at 95 years old, has spent his life attempting to cement his father's legacy. Unfortunately, to mixed success. Whilst he has done a formidable job at patching up a lot of the holes in Lassiter's story, no reef has ever been found to confirm it. For Bob, though, it's not about the money, it's about combating the idea that his dad was a crazed con man trying to swindle people. Many at the time thought so, including the two expedition teams that travelled with him. The government and mining companies disagree. No serious effort has ever been made to find Lassiter's reef, and if anybody's going to be invested in that, it's them. I'll take a moment to get my soapbox out and tell you all to look at the absurd lobbying power of the mining industry in Australian politics, and a cursory search should prove that if anybody would have found it by now, it would be them. The Aborigines, for their part, have apparently been mostly bemused by the story. Of these 750,000-odd Aboriginal Australians, you can't put a blanket over their opinions on the matter, but one voice that seemed to resonate referred to it as a, quote, whitefella dream. One group intent on finding it has been working since 2010 to use satellite imaging, such as Google Earth, to try and locate the reef. And they've said they intend to share it with the nation, particularly with indigenous groups, as a nose-thumbing to the mining companies that have often disenfranchised those groups in pursuit of greater wealth. If you couldn't tell by now, mining politics is a big deal in Australia. But what would Lassiter think? Well, you tell me. One of his final diary entries apparently read, quote, what good a reef worth millions? I would give it all for a loaf of bread. So, did Lasseter ever find anything walking the white fella dream time? Sources say no, but we can never be too sure with cases like this. I'd like to take a moment as an aside to mention an interesting link to Episode 4's Franklin Expedition. It keeps being relevant somehow. So the Gibson Desert, in which Lassiter died and countless others have searched for his fabled reef, is named after Alfred Gibson, the younger brother of one William Gibson, a steward on the HMS Terror. Alfred went missing in 1874, nearly 30 years after his brother set off from England, in Ernest Giles' famous cross-country expedition, and the desert is named for him two brothers, thousands of miles apart, both disappearing off the face of the earth in search of fortune and glory. But an actual parallel I'd like to draw is the idea that many of Franklin's admirers had held on to, that despite his tragic end, he and his men did discover the Northwest Passage. Of course, we won't fully know until we excavate the ships, which we found, but we'll probably never know the truth because there's much left to find and much we likely never will. But it's the same hope that Bob Lasseter holds out, that one day and for him, that day may never come. He'll find the proof that his dad really did find an Australian El Dorado, that he wasn't some crazy coot, that he didn't leave him and his family and go off into the desert, never to be seen again, for nothing. We like to believe sometimes that things happen for a reason. The sacrifices aren't in vain, the failures do get justified. And countless Australians like to believe it too. It speaks to something in the national character, one often defined as being fiercely independent and trailblazing, that this one lone old guy went off and found himself a gold hoard. His death before he could return with it simply makes it a pyrrhic victory rather than defeat. He's a tragic hero, a man who died pursuing his dream and sticking it to his detractors as he went down swinging. That's the romantic telling, anyways. As we discussed back when we talked about Franklin, however, what does this really mean? Is this just evidence that we can't accept the reality in front of us? Should somebody grab Bob Lassiter by the scruff of the neck, slap him about and tell him to move on with his life? Well, no, that's cruel and heartless. I ask you though, at what point do we move on from these things, declare them to be exaggerated at best and made up at worst? Is it possible for someone like Bob Lassiter to actually move on after all this time? Is it fair to say that Lassiter had his chance to prove himself, and as history tells us, he came up short? That's the lesson we've been exploring through these two episodes. Greed never pays. Sure, the allure of a lifetime of riches can be tempting, and some people would even consider it worth the risk. But every movie you've ever seen or every book you've ever read shows it clear, from Indiana Jones to Treasure Island. The guy who makes the move to grab the treasure without thinking is the guy who meets the sticky end. It's a classic cautionary tale of putting material desires over other concerns. Lasseter had at least two families he could have just gone back to. Gone home, been a family man. But he didn't choose that path. And part of me doesn't begrudge him for it. I'm an aspiring explorer myself, if that wasn't obvious. I love seeing sights, travelling, and writing about my experiences. For me, the button-down office life just isn't what I dream of. On the other hand, think about his son, Bob. He spent his whole life trying to defend his father's legacy. If Lasseter could see that, when he first set out in his folly back in 1930, when Bob would have been just five, would he still have gone? I call it greed, though. For some, it was pure necessity. Lasseter did have kids to feed, and the 1930s was a tough time for Australia. Western gold rush be damned. Maybe he went out for one last search for the reef because he wanted to provide a better life for his family. Or maybe he intended to blow all that cash on luxury. I'll let you decide whether he's the hero or villain of the story. Or whether it's oversimplifying to use those terms. People are complicated, and I won't pretend to know why Lassiter did what he did. All we know is what's left to us. No reef and a tarnished legacy. What we know for sure is that nobody's ever found Lassiter's reef, at least not so far. And if Lassiter did find it, he died before he could make anything out of it or record its location. And with that cold diary entry... I'd trade it all for a loaf of bread. He didn't seem to think it was worth it. Could that be why he was unhappy with the expedition? He was getting cold feet after all that time, thinking maybe he should cut and run rather than playing the young man's game. Some suggested he was worried he'd be exposed, that he'd try and scam the investors, and they'd called his bluff by organising this expedition, and his misdirections eventually got him killed. Bob, of course, dismisses that idea. Could it be then that he just didn't have it in him? and in those final moments in that cave, barely kept from the scorching desert sun, he saw what so many had seen before him and would after him. All that glitters is not gold. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios. Music from ProductionCrate.com. Go there for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod, And support us on Patreon from as little as one pound a month to help us grow. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy.